You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 15th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. We have a full boat again this week, first time in a couple of weeks. Oh, I know. Full boat. Yes. Kara, welcome so back. I know, oh, since Bethlehem. Yeah. All right, tell us all about it, Kara. How was Bethlehem. Africa? I don't really know where to start because, and I'm not just saying this to be dramatic. I've had lots of people in my life because I've been talking to a few people. I've been home for a few days now. And they're like, wow, I've never heard you talk like this. My mother, especially, was like, I've never (laughs) heard you talk. I have traveled the world. I've been to many, many Mm -hmm. places. There are obviously a lot of places I've not yet been. I spent quite a bit of time, like almost three weeks in Namibia. And I don't know what better way to say it except that I am bitten in a major way. Like I'm Uh desperate to get back. Wow. wow. Yeah. What, what did Desperate. it to you? I don't even know how to put somebody? my finger on it because it's not just one thing. <laughs> it's it's the continent. It really is the continent. It's ah. like, it's beautiful. There, It like touches something really fundamental in you. The people are, in, in Namibia at least, are just like the, the kindest, realest people you'll ever meet. You're very close to the land. You're very close to humanity in a way that you don't really get in this very like heavily industrialized west i don't know it's just a beautiful beautiful place it's like it's the seat of humanity i mean not yeah. exactly where i was but i'm you know relatively close to it the wildlife is stunning and in many ways bizarre to those of us who live here and have only ever seen these animals in zoos i had so many incredible sightings oh i didn't even pull out the book steve i'm going to have to do this the next time we we record because our guide who took us through Etosha and a few other places for the second half of my trip mm-hmm. is a birder. Oh, and yeah? so, yeah, so we, he, he printed these really lovely books for us with like a bunch of mammal species and a bunch of bird species. And we got to check off all the ones that we observed every day. Um, and it was just really, really cool. And I think probably my best mammal sighting was in Etosha. We were driving and I was like, leopard. And the guys just kept driving. <laughs> They're like, no, 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 no. And I was like, no, stop, stop. And we threw the car in verse. And <laughs> there was a beautiful female leopard. And she stayed kind of close to the car for like 20 minutes. Was just stalking wow. and walking wow. around and just being her gorgeous self. And he told us it was his best leopard sighting he'd ever had in Atosha. Well, wow. you said lucky. pull over. Yeah, I, I was really lucky because they were like, "Hair, that was a good spot. Like, apparently, neither of them saw it. You're a natural. I know. I was like, ooh, I'm going to be a tracker. Um, but also, <laughs> the first half of the trip was also really eye-opening. I spent the first half of the trip in Vintook at a conference, and it was a conservation-slash-big-game-hunting conference. And I went into it feeling very uneasy about the topic and kind of already having a premature idea of where my um, opinions lie. 
but it was not really well researched or informed. And I actually left the conference after talking to a lot of really brilliant people from all over the world, having a completely different opinion of trophy hunting, which is now called conservation hunting than I had before. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, I'm kind of converted. Not that I would ever want to do big game hunting, but I completely understand its place in conservation and in sort of for the economics. Yeah. So it's more complex. Charge huge fees and those those fees (laughs) go to conservation efforts. Yeah. So the bottom line is that um, one hunter who gets a tag to kill an old bull, let's say an old elephant bull or um, some other animal that's, you know, uh, past its prime or that's a problem animal that was very likely going to be culled anyway, getting that one tag will often infuse tens to even hundreds of thousands of dollars into these conservancies. They often will leave the meat for the local people. Uh, Like I said, the animal will often be killed anyway, and it brings in something like 16,000 times the income of photographic tourism with one sixteenth or one one hundred sixtieth. I can't remember what the number is, but yeah, I think it's like one hunter for every 16,000 photographic tourists, or maybe that's dollars, but the environmental impact is nil compared to the amount of tourists that would need to come by and go to the lodges and snap pictures in order to raise the same kind of funding for the local Mm -hmm. conservation efforts. So it's, again, you said it well, Evan, I think I heard you in the background. A lot more complicated than people think it is. And what I also learned is that our opinions in the West, which are very far from where the the actual conversation matters, actually are affecting politics in Africa in a very major way because we have influential voices, but we don't know what the hell we're talking about. Mm-hmm. That sounds and, about right. Yeah. And it's really frustrating to see the impacts of, you know, organizations like Greenpeace and other NGOs, which are just really ill-informed on the science and on the economics of what's happening on the ground. So it's a whole fascinating con- uh, topic. It's it's a really emotional topic for a lot of people, as it is for me. The idea of mm-hmm. hunting an elephant is like heartbreaking to me. Um, I would never be one that would pull the trigger. I can't imagine doing it. But I also fundamentally now understand why it's an important part of conservation. So yeah, I I learned an awful lot. And I, I don't know, and I really changed a lot. And I'm actually now trying to figure out how I can get back to maybe collect some of my dissertation data there. That's kind mm-hmm. of humbling, you know, because I if you asked me before you even said any of this to me, I, I, you mm-hmm. know, we all can't know every detail about everything. Mm-mm. I had no idea about everything that you just said. Yeah, me neither. And I went in, like when people were like, why are you going there? And I was like, oh, I'm going to a conservation conference, which it was. It was a CIC conference. It was conservation and hunting. But I didn't mention the hunting part because people are like, oh, God. Mm-hmm. Like they just have these really intense notions of what that is. And I did, too. So I'm just, I mean, I was invited. I was an invited speaker to talk about communicating nuanced and difficult you know, topics as a science communicator, because there's so much translation to these like hunting organizations, these conservation organizations. But, um, you know, sitting in that room, I was like, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this, you guys, like, I'm really open. And I'm, I'm interested to learn. And over the course of several days, like, my mind was opened, and I was humbled, just like you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think the meta lessons, the most important thing is that good intentions aren't enough. You have to actually know the facts on the ground. Mm -hmm. And we should be cautious about having an opinion about what should be happening halfway around the world sitting in our comfortable, you know, homes and apartments. You know what I mean? Absolutely. With no context. And like it it really fundamentally what we're talking about there is 
is fr- uh, struggles with empathy because we might yeah. think we're making the empathic decision, but we're not if we're not taking the time to understand those positions. And also, I think it comes down to that greater conversation that we often have about skeptic uh, about skepticism as skeptics, which is that like emotion is an important part of the conversation. Don't get me wrong, but it cannot trump logic and right. reason. It just can't. Yeah, that's basically the whole anti-GMO movement. You know, you mm-hmm. talk about <laughs> privileged, you know, Westerners proclaiming what people halfway around the world who are starving can and cannot eat. Yeah, you know? I actually right. brought that that's up a crazy. lot in because that, I was like, this is the, you know, the analogy that I know. And so, and I see so much parallel here. And also you sometimes see it with the kind of anti-animal um, experimentation movement. Because, mm-hmm. you know, it's some of the same people, the PETA types um, and the Greenpeace types who are raising, uh, you know, the GMO concerns and the um, the animal welfare concerns. And it's one of those things where there's like a legitimate argument buried in there somewhere, but then it's compounded and and sanitized and decontextualized. And eventually it becomes this this ideological fight that it has no relation to the truth. Mm hmm. And it's really right. frustrating. So, so yeah, it was humbling and cool. fascinating. And I fell in love. That's always a great experience when you mm-hmm. realize the depth of your own ignorance about something. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And I'm lucky enough that I was able to go in with an open mind and that I was able to be surrounded by really brilliant people who, um, who also, I think, are very, very good communicators. That's awesome. Yeah. And Kara, you have some other news for us. You have a new show coming out. I do. So part of the reason I haven't been on the show, what have you guys been saying in my absence, by the way? We, we don't why, have to listen oh, to find out. CIA mission. Abducted by aliens. <laughs> uh, joined so, a coven. So yeah, I was out of town, yeah. right? I was in Africa for a bit, but I've also been missing shows here and there because I'm on a really heavy production schedule, which is really hard. It's really hard because I, I don't have any control over the days when we're filming. I'm so glad that I have this little bit of downtime today where I've traveled from New York to Tampa. It just happens to be on a travel day when we're recording the show, so I get to join you guys. But we've been filming new episodes for brrr, a reboot. Of Brain Games. Brain Games. Yeah, Brain Games. Awesome. Yeah, National Geographic. So it's been off the air for a while, and now it's a whole new kind of reimagined show. It's actually Celebrity Brain Games. So each episode will be hosted by Keegan-Michael Key. You guys know him from Key and Peele. Oh, yeah. Sure. I love him. Yeah, hilarious, really, really talented, a a big science enthusiast as well. And then there will be these different themes to the episodes, and there will be a different celebrity on stage with him doing some really fun brain games. So, for example, the episode about relationships and about – or actually, it's more about, like, men and women and gender um, differences, similarities, all that kind of stuff – is going to feature Dax and – Dax Shepard and Kristen Bell, you know, a very famous celebrity couple who are super funny. And then – then I will be in the field, so I'm the field host, and I'm doing a bunch of really cool brain games, these interactive experiments and things like that, with everyday people on the street. So that's why I've been traveling all over and filming like a m- mad woman, and I love mm-hmm. every minute of it. It's been so much fun. Cool. Can't wait to see it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So they just announced it yesterday, at the um, as of this recording, at the... The Upfronts, uh, first ever Disney Upfronts, because Nat G is now part of the Disney family. And it will air on National Geographic uh, on December 1st of this year. Yay. Oh, cool. Cool, yep, cool, yep. cool. All right. Well, it's great to have you back home, Kara. Thanks. Home at the SGU. 
Yeah, I was like home in Tampa. I haven't been home in like a month. <laughs> your virtual, your virtual online home, Tampa. Yeah. You're, it's like future Kara, thirty-five years from now. I know, right? Just driving forty-five miles down the road. You know how it is. Going for dinner at three thirty. You yep. know it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to start the news items with 5G. You guys know about 5G, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, so not as much as I this. want to. Let me look I'm, at my phone and see. I'm mm. hearing lots of bad things about it, which is ridiculous. Ridiculous. So 5G is the coming stand, new standard for wireless communication. It's going to be replacing 4G. Uh, so in the 5 is it's the fifth generation, right? So it's just the, basically the fifth generation wireless standard. Uh, this will be using a higher frequency, a radio frequency, um, than the 4G, that which will allow for faster communication, more throughput, less lag time. They say that this, you know, getting to 5G is going to be a significant upgrade to pretty much, you know, all wireless technology, not just your cell phone. And, and they're also claiming this will, you know, allow for the full realization of the Internet of Things, right? Where and everything uh, yeah, electronically, yeah. yeah, could be communicating on a network and sharing information and spying on us and doing all kinds of interesting stuff. Steve, can I ask you a quick question? Yep. Okay, this is one of those fun gaps in my knowledge. Like, <laughs> I'm actually remembering. Do you guys remember when I didn't know what a jackal was? <laughs> Oh, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I have now seen, oh, yeah. yeah, remember there's an episode of the podcast yeah, where yeah. I was like, what's yeah, a jackal? Now. And you guys were like, what? I've now, by the way, seen several black jack, uh, black-backed jackals in the wild, so I don't know mm. them intimately. But anyway, this is another one of those gaps in my knowledge. It's one of those words I hear all the time, and I don't really know what it means, which is throughput. Yeah, so that just means like how many uh, gigabytes per second of data is going through. How so people. Oh, so as, it's, it's really speed. It's speed. Yeah. Okay. So, All right. Uh, as as uh, Phil Plate pointed out to us on one of our earlier shows, mm-hmm. people mistakenly use the term bandwidth to refer to that. Mm-hmm. But bandwidth is a different concept. That's oh. literally how much – what range of frequency is covered by a technology or a device or whatever, how much bandwidth. This is – throughput is – what's the megabits per second? And in this case – the 5G is claimed to be giving up to 1.3 gigabits per second. Um, Compared to what? For like what is 4G? It's like this is, I think it's like 10 times as much as 4G. Oh, geez. Wow. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it should be a significant improvement. So we're all looking forward to it. But, but. as 5G is about to be rolled out, there is yeah. a lot of fear mongering about cancer. negative health consequences, <laughs> cancer and otherwise. It's causing, I've cancer. heard it all. Autism. Yeah. Vaccination. Wait, autism immunity. from 5G? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wait, but it hasn't even come out yet. Ah, pre, but already pre- kids autism. have autism. Yeah, pre-autism yeah. syndrome. Jeez. I hate people. This was uh, <laughs> one of the most asked questions that we got this week because there's a lot of, you know, to, uh. in the media, it's in the buzz is going around and people want to know, is, this, is there anything to this? This is something that we have been following on science-based medicine. I wrote about it today and I've, I probably write about this a couple of times a year. The whole idea of is electromagnetic radiation, especially non-ionizing radiation, which is uh-huh. what we're talking about, That's what is the potential health risk of this? Uh, I think that the, a lot of the recent discussion has been surrounding a group of scientists who put out a public statement saying, you know, essentially an open petition 
warning about the risks of EMFs and specifically 5G, and they sent it to the World Health Organization. Of course. So, you know, if you have a petition signed by 250 scientists saying that, hey, there's a, there's a health concern here, that gets the media's attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, the group is emfscientist.org. Sounds well, there you go. That's legit, legit, right? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, I first wrote about this petition back in March. And unfortunately, I think I, I don't find it very compelling. There's a few red flags to this group. And I think they're getting unwarranted attention in the media, which I think was their goal, right? That was the whole point of doing the, the petition. So first of all, they're, they're not really – like they're not a generic scientific group who happens to have this opinion. It's a group of people who organize because they already you know, have this opinion that EMF and electromagnetic you – know, non-ionizing electromagnetic radiation can have biological effects. There's a few red flags in their petition that, you know, to me was like, okay, this group is completely, not, you know, illegitimate. Uh, so one is they completely endorse the notion of electromagnetic sensitivity or electromagnetic hypersensitivity, which right. is completely bogus, right? The, the research basically shows it's not real. So electromagnetic sensitivity or EMS is the notion that some people are especially sensitive to electromagnetic fields and it causes a host of nonspecific symptoms. <laughs> right. Problem is that when it's properly studied in a blinded fashion, yeah, these self-identified sufferers of EMS cannot tell when they're being exposed to electromagnetic waves. So the, the simplest interpretation of the evidence is that EMS does not exist. That is a it is something else, right? It's, it's people who have symptoms for other reasons or it's psychogenic or whatever, but it's not EMS. So the, the fact that this group of scientists is endorsing a, you know, a pseudoscience, a straight up bogus diagnosis calls their credibility into serious question. Um, they also, you know, reading their petition, the, the biggest problem I, uh, with their approach is that they are treating Every speculative, possible, preliminary, questionable biological effect of non-ionizing radiation as if it's proven, as if we know it does this, therefore we have to be careful about it. Hmm, Yeah. It's the source of my fibromyalgia. Right. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's where the the controversy is. So let let me back up a little bit and just talk about how do we answer this question should we be concerned about any potential health risks of 5G? Um, it is a new technology. It is more powerful than the older technology. So maybe, you know, we, you know, we, we should take a look at it. So we've talked on the show before about hazard versus risk. You guys remember that yes. distinction? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. How could we forget? The whole shark shark example. Yeah, but let me give you another one. I came up with another, so I'm not using the same example over and over again. So Uh hazard is like a loaded gun, right? A loaded gun is certainly a health hazard in that it has the potential to do a lot of damage. Um, However, if that loaded gun is locked away in your safe, it does not present very much of a risk. The risk of, of that loaded weapon is minimized by the fact that it's safely locked away. If you hand that exact same gun to a five-year-old child, oh. that mm-hmm. presents oh. a massive risk right, of harm to self or others. So same hazard, dramatically different risk based upon the situation, right? So we could ask 
when people ask what's the quote unquote risk of 5G, they're really asking two related questions. What's the hazard? Is there even any potential for 5G to cause harm? And two, what's the actual risk of getting exposed in the real world? Uh, the hazard is easier to answer in a way because we don't really, we can't really directly answer the question, what's the risk of 5G? Because, uh, it hasn't, it doesn't exist out there in the wild yet, right? So it, it hasn't been fully rolled out. So not a lot of people are getting exposed to it. So we can't say, oh, we've studied it for five years. We haven't studied 5G itself. All we can do is extrapolate from risk studies looking at other non-ionizing radiation, mm -hmm. you know, cell phones and, and other things, and then extrapolate from that. Uh, what we could say from there is that for after 20 years of looking, you haven't really clearly found any risk from non-ionizing radiation. Looking at you know people who are at differences in exposure rates out there in the world and and differences in health outcomes, so that that doesn't prove zero risk, but it shows that the risk has got to be pretty small. The only I think wiggle room in that data is you know if if you want to be really cautious, then children and pregnant women may want to limit their exposure, um, but you know so far there's there's no real demonstrated risk. Of course, it's, you know, because this is a technology that's rapidly advancing, that question's a moving target. By the time you really fully answer it, there's a new standard that's out there. You know what I mean? Like you do research on 3G and then 4G's out and you have to start all over again and answer the question for 4G and now 5G is out. So it'll be five or 10 years before we have five or 10 years of data on 5G. But I think it's reasonable to extrapolate from our existing evidence to say, yeah, it's probably not much of a risk there. Um, what about hazard? Uh, the only replicable demonstrable biological effect from uh, non-ionizing radiation in the 5G frequency range and power range is really tiny, teeny tissue heating. It heats up your tissues a little bit. That's it. That is the only replicable effect. Now, there is a host of other reflex that do not replicate or have not been replicated in the literature. They're preliminary. They haven't been confirmed or scientists have been unable to replicate them. Uh, and most of them are looking at, you know, markers, which may suggest a possible hazard, but doesn't really prove that there is a hazard. And I personally don't find very worrisome or compelling. Let me give you an example. One study shows that non-ionizing radiation in this frequency range can increase oxidative stress. And you might think, oh, I've heard of that. You know, that's supposed to be a bad thing, right? But uh, if you look at all of the research, I know I've talked about this before, there's a homeostasis in the body of oxidative stress and antioxidants, and we have powerful antioxidants in the body. And, you know, increasing, you know, pushing it one way or the other a tiny bit is probably not going to affect that homeostasis. And so in my my reading of all the literatures, I wouldn't be too worried about something which, you know, slightly increases oxidative stress. So what it's is not, oxidative stress? So uh, Free when radicals we, knocking out uh, electrons, pretty much. Yes. Yeah. So when we the, – one of the consequences of metabolism is oxygen-free radicals, which are very, very reactive oxygen species that bind to other things like proteins. And when it does that, it can degrade them, right? And so that can cause damage to cells by just, you know, damaging proteins by binding to them. So – but – in order to, to deal with that, we have antioxidants that we make naturally that you know, create this homeostasis where we keep, keep the oxidative stress at bay. Um, but also the oxidative species 
are signaling molecules that also trigger a lot of other protective things that happen in the cells. So there's a balance there. And it's not easy to alter that balance. That's why taking antioxidants doesn't really do anything, you know? Right. And just to be clear, oxidative stress is caused by breathing, metabolizing, yes, right. being it's alive. You want to stop metabolism. it and die. Eating Doritos. <laughs> well. Yeah. But it sounds really scary. And then you could make like this three or four chain argument. Oh, look at this marker is a little bit off, which could cause A and then B and then C. And then that oh, could wow. lead to this disease. So that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. You know, the stuff that most of that, even if it were true, who cares? Some marker of inflammation is a little increased. It's basically saying, oh, stuff happens. And then I could weave some tale about how that stuff might actually be a marker for some damage. But Gosh, it's, it's like not the, the same. weakest association you can I know. Come up with. Exactly. Exactly. This kind of stuff almost never pans out in, in research. Uh, it's just, it's the most preliminary kind of thing. So for, for these, this group, you know, of, of uh, petitioners to say that there's all these proven health effects in the literature is just not accurate. It is not a fair or scientific assessment of what the literature actually says. Meanwhile, the EPA, the FDA, the National Cancer Institute, many other scientific organizations have looked at the same research and said, ah, we're not really concerned. Yeah, but we they're think, in on it, Steve. They're, the, there are current safety uh, limits in terms of limiting exposure to you know, radioactivity in this frequency, you know, EMF in this frequency, and they say this is, you know, there's no evidence to change the current regulations. So I think a lot of the the hype over the you know the fear of 5G is overblown. I'm not concerned. We I think we do need to continue to research. Of course, why not? It's and as the technology evolves, we have to keep an eye on it, make sure that nothing peaks up above. You know, there's no signal peaking up above the noise that would make us concerned. Uh, and we want you know more and more reassuring data with anything, any potential risk. Uh, and I said, if you want to be like hyper careful, you know, then use a hands-free device. You know, if you don't want to have a phone glued to your ear for hours and hours a day, that's probably a good idea. Uh, even though the risk of that still may be zero. We, you know, the, the data is not incompatible with zero risk. But, you know, the question is how much of an abundance of caution do you want to have? Uh, and I think their argument weakens over time, Steve, because oh, yeah. the cell phones, they're obviously ubiquitous. We have years more under our belt of information and data, and it's not showing up that, that there's any harm as a result of this. So their argument is ac actually weakens with every passing month. Right, but yeah. every time the technology changes, they can say, whoa, wait a minute. Now all that old data is no longer valid. We have to start all from scratch all over again with the but new – But what's, what's – is there really like a big difference in the, in the technology? No, no, no. It's just the frequency of the waves are, yeah. are faster and the, the intent – the power is a little increased. But it's still – you know, keep in mind this. These this is part of the electromagnetic spectrum, right? Where this is in the radio frequency wave. Uh, if you go, if you inc if you keep increasing the frequency, you know what you get to next? Light, visible light, right? Visible light. Um, so we're still talking. Like me sitting in front of my computer screen, the computer is bombarding me with electromagnetic waves right. that are higher frequency and intensity than five G. And I'm, and I sit in front of a computer screen for hours and hours a day. As do yeah, and the guys, the guys who are creating these websites and writing the blog posts about this are sitting in front of their computers. <laughs> <Get> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> My final take on this is: we can't ever prove zero risk, right? 
But at some point, risk gets so low that it disappears into the background risk of life. Yeah. And just don't Walking worry about it. Door. But let me ask you this. If I said, guys, we have a new technology, uh-huh. and this technology will be massively convenient, but 50,000 people a year are going to die from the direct use of this technology. Do you think that we should adopt it? Cars? Yeah, I mean, the cars yeah, do that. Yeah. yeah, I'm talking about cars. Yeah. And if, but if we enact some really strict strict regulations and safety measures, we can get that down to, say, 35,000. But that's it. 35,000 people a year are going to die if we use this technology. But the technology is going to be really convenient. People would say 35,000 people a year. No Impossible. way. But that's cars, right? Yeah. Uh, and I love to remind people that we pump explosive gas into residential homes to use for cooking and heating. Oh, yeah. Right? Think about that. We Think about We have a whole system of, of – we're going to run pipes throughout the city and pump explosive gas through it into people's homes. You know? Think of, <laughs> that's think of crazy purpose, it sounds it's, I know, but that's what we're doing. But that's okay because we accept that, okay, there are, we do risky things because it's convenient and we just mitigate the risk and try to minimize it as much as possible. Or right. what if I say there's a new activity? I forget the numbers, but there's a new activity that's a pastime. This is purely – doesn't. there's no benefit from this, purely pastime, but it's going to kill and wound and injure this huge number of people – Every year, outlaw. That, that's like skiing. You know, should we? Oh. we yeah, we should outlaw skiing if you if you take that risk, take that right. approach. But but for things that are established, so first of all, you have to consider the benefit as well as the risk. So you know, sure, people heat their homes with gas, and that keeps them from freezing to death. Or you know, you could people's lives are saved by because of vehicles. Um, it, it's a huge part of distributing food and getting you know ambulances to the hospital, et cetera. So yeah, yeah you have to you have to consider the the risk versus the benefit. Uh, but then even just recreationally, we say yeah, we people are free to accept a certain level of risk. So anyway, Steve, we're having, all those bananas I ate the other day, all that radiation. I, I know <laughs> there's a lot of radiation for bananas. So all this toss, we're talking about this tiny theoretical, not convincing risk about this technology. Forget about it. It's in the background. It's noise. It's nothing. Nothing compared to just the risk of living your life, going through your day. And having super fast video to watch on your smartphone. Yeah. Come on, people. <laughs> Let's get our priorities in order. I mean, video is actually works pretty damn good as is. I mean, it's going to really... We're gonna, 4K, we're, though, on my phone, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait. I got to say this, man. The cruise, one thing it really reminded me of was Wally. Because <laughs> uh, everybody had bone loss. <laughs> we're two clicks away from like just moving ourselves around in automated vehicles and not walking and doing anything anymore except mm. consumption. I mean, it's that movie was was more an eye opener, right? Want to admit, man, <laughs> it was rough. I agree. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. Guys, KiwiCo creates these super cool hands-on projects for kids. That really makes learning about science and technology, engineering, arts, and math a lot of fun. If you get a KiwiCo subscription each month, the child in your life, it could be your own child, it could be your niece, nephew, your friend's kids, you can get them to receive a, a really cool, fun, engaging project which will help them develop you know, creativity and confidence. There's so many things that these types of projects can help a kid learn about and also feel good about themselves. Every crate includes all the supplies needed for that month's project. It also has detailed, easy-to-follow instructions and an educational magazine to learn even more about the crate's theme. 
Yeah, we've been getting these projects uh, for me and my daughters are really great. One of the projects, for example, is an actual working trebuchet. Trebuchet is a type of catapult that throws stuff. It's really cool. But, you know, you could learn. There's a lot of mechanics and laws of motion that you could learn about with it. KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids of all ages, visit KiwiCo.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Bob, tell us about these hardy exoplanets. Hardy. 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 So um, hardy. I like how they, they describe this uh, this study as uh, the survival guide for exoplanets. Um, so, so described as a survival guide for exoplanets, scientists have for the first time tested models to see what the tidal forces created during the formation of a white dwarf, what it, that does to its retinue of planets. Uh, this could to help its what? Retinue of retinue. planets. What's a retinue? Retinue is, you know, the planets that, that go along with it, the, the planets that, that orbit the sun. Um, retinue is like a, a, a lineup, a grouping, a Yes, gathering. the sun has a retinue of planets. Like I have a retinue of rogues. Yes, you could say that. Yes. So <laughs> this this could look it up. Good, it's a good word. Uh, this could help. Uh, this could help near future telescopes find even more exoplanets. Uh, now this comes from the Astronomy and Astrophysics Group at the University of Warwick, uh, who recently published their work on this in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society. So the key here is tidal forces, which are which is like my favorite one among my favorite forces um, in space. Uh, we've talked about it on the show, and I'm going to talk about it again. Yeah. It's simply the, the difference in the gravitational attraction across a large astronomical body. Uh, that's one way to put it. The difference across the Earth, for example, from, from the moon raises the oceanic tides on Earth. Uh, but it doesn't just stop with water. I mean, this affects everything. Uh, there's a measurable atmospheric and actual land tides across the Earth as well. So, so if you see – if you come across uh, massive destruction in space – with like planets being ripped apart, chances are tidal forces are behind it. That's, that, that's what you put your money money on. So in this specific case, the astrophysicist ran models based on what we know about the formation of white dwarf stars. Um, white dwarf stars, that's the end of life stage of stars that are less than 10 solar masses. Uh, a good way, I, the way I imagine it is imagine taking the, our sun and squeezing it down to the volume of the earth. So lots of mass in a tiny, tiny space. Uh, very dense stuff. So when this is created, the star blasts away its outer atmosphere, which can certainly take out some of the planets if they're really close because that would definitely be nasty uh, to be near a star when that happens. But the next stage, the actual collapse into electron degenerate matter that makes up a white white dwarf, that's what that's what, what what's never really been studied that closely before. That you know what, what's the effect of that happening? That collapse is what produces the, those intense uh, shifts in, in tidal forces that can actually move planets into a different orbit, or this is cool, it could even push them away into a safer, more distant orbit. So it's kind of you know unpredictable what those uh, you know those uh, tidal forces will do. Um, you know, move it closer into a destruction destruction zone, or or push it away. So if you look at the model, with the the major reveal of the model was that the planets aren't safer if if you're more massive. You would think, right? Oh, a really big planet would be maybe would have some protection, but it's not the case. I wouldn't think that, right? The, well, some people would, Steve. Some people might. The, the more, tidal forces will be greater. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but what about you know what about gaseous planets? What about you know it's hard you know it's hard to 
to, to know int- intuitively what exactly would happen. But yes, the bottom line is that the more massive the planet is, the greater the likelihood that it'll be ripped apart by the tidal forces. But mass isn't the only uh, important characteristic. Of course, distance is, is, is supremely important as well. But another factor that I hadn't considered was viscosity. Right. I mean, that 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 is a, obviously or not obviously, but this model is saying that viscosity is important. For example, snowball worlds like Saturn's Enceladus uh, are considered low viscosity for obvious reasons. So worlds like that are described um, in the research I've done as being swallowed in this scenario, even if they're even if they're quite far from the zone that's close to the white dwarf that's that they describe as a zone like zone or radiuses of, of destruction just because it's a it's got a low viscosity and it's, and it's very malleable like snow for example um it could get it can get sucked into the maw of the, uh, the 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 danger zone around the uh the white dwarf now perhaps not surprisingly a high viscosity exo earth they described it as that's composed of dense, like a dense core of heavy elements that should survive the transformation of their star. Best of all, pretty much best case scenario is to have a, is have a really dense planet. Even if they were more than, than, uh, even if they were a little bit more than half the distance away from, say, the Enceladus type, uh, planet, they, they could still survive. So even though, say, the Enceladus is twice as far away, Enceladus could get destroyed and half that distance, a, a high viscosity planet could survive really dense rocky one but i was disappointed by this research it, it didn't have what i was hoping it would have and that is what's going to happen to the earth right cuz our sun is less than 10 solar masses what's going to happen to us in 5 billion years so one of the scientists kind of uh, summed it up saying this our study while sophisticated in several respects only treats homogeneous rocky planets that are consistent in their structure throughout a multi-layered planet like earth would be significantly more complicated to calculate, but we are investigating the feasibility of doing so. So uh, we're going to have to wait to see what will happen to the Earth when our sun goes into retirement. Uh, but the point, I think the point will probably be moot anyway, because m- many astronomers think that the Earth's going to be engulfed by the sun's outer layers even before it has a chance to be flung away or pulled in uh, by the tidal forces. So yep, uh, hopefully some again. of us will be around. And to see exactly what happens, but I don't think so. Evan, you're going to tell us about a very re- a similar item, this one, though, focusing on the moon. Yeah, well, the moon. It's alive and well and – well, it might not be well, but it's alive. It's alive? <laughs> it's alive. Well, when I say not well, I mean <laughs> – so let me explain that a little bit. When I say it's not well, I mean it's a body that's not in sync with human needs, right? Among its drawbacks are basic things like negligible atmosphere, negligible magnetic field, extreme temperatures, low gravity, no Starbucks coffee within bouncing distance. Right, Bob? The the basics. But it is alive. (laughs) By alive, I mean active. And by active, it means there are moonquakes. Yes, there are. That's very interesting, but that does not mean it's alive. Well, (laughs) (laughs) I fundamentally disagree with your definition of life. (laughs) I just explained it. I said by alive, I mean active. (laughs) Geologically active. Thank you. I wasn't even going to use the word word geologically because isn't that tied specifically to Earth when you say geo? Oh, interesting. So I don't know what what would you call it? Lunologically. 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 So I did. I did specifically avoid that word. One of the reasons there are moon quakes, and this is where the news item comes in, the moon is shrinking. Uh Aha. And moon quakes occur as a result. 
So these are the results of a study published in Nature Geoscience, which reveals that moonquakes and the shrinking moon are related. And they arrived at this conclusion by combining the data from observations measured back in the 1970s, along with data that's been collected over the last 10 years. So about this, a couple things come immediately to mind when you read this story. So number one, how do we know there are moonquakes? And number two, how do we know the moon is shrinking? So one at a time. Moonquakes. So Apollo missions 12, 14, 15, and 16 left working moonquake detectors, seismometers, on the lunar surface. And these transmitted recorded data to the Earth until 1977. So from 1969 to 1977, we've received data from the moon showing these vibrations caused by internal moonquakes. 28 of them, in fact, uh, to be precise, they've been measured. Um, but scientists could not be 100% sure if these moonquakes were associated with actual moving faults breaking up on the surface of the moon, or were these the result of purely internal movements, which can also cause tremors. What about being hit by little tiny tiny meteorites and stuff? Couldn't that uh, replicate the uh, signature of a moonquake? Sure, I, I imagine that could as well. Um, but too because localized. Yeah, yeah localized, have right, and they haven't the spaced out. Yeah, yeah, so they, they are spaced out um, a, a good distance uh, away from each other, so they're able to, I guess, eliminate those based on, like you said, Bob, that very localized phenomenon of an impact. Did you know that in 1972, Apollo 17 astronauts Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt inspected a step in the terrain, which was about 30 meters high, and it's called the Lee-Lincoln Scarp, and they and their team of advisors back on Earth thought it might be a geologic fault. Hmm. Mm. But they couldn't be 100% sure. So you have this data from the 70s. Now, move up to 2010, where scientists have had reason to believe that the moon was shrinking, but they didn't, up till then, they didn't have a way to make decent measurements, to be sure. But however, once the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, the LRO, went into orbit, it was able to take some pretty precise measurements. Uh, specifically of the cliffs in the lunar crust. And those measurements indicate that the moon shrank globally in the geologically recent past and is very likely still shrinking today. So think of it like when a piece of fruit dries up. It starts to shrivel, kind of pull in on itself, and all yeah. these wrinkles form. But instead of wrinkles, because the moon's surface crust is brittle, it breaks. So as the moon shrinks, it forms thrust faults. And that's where one section of the crust is pushed up over a neighboring part, where we've seen evidence here of on Earth. So what's the long-term like prediction here of what would happen to the moon? It, well, because it is cooling, it is shrinking as a result. And you know, it's not like it's going to entirely collapse on itself, uh, but it is, uh, it is definitely reducing itself in size. That's cool. I didn't know and that. And the moonquakes are can now be linked directly associated with its with the shrinking that's happening. Uh, Thomas Waters, he's the senior scientist at the Center for Earth and Planetary Studies at the Smithsonian's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, and he led the study. And he says that our analysis gives the first evidence that these faults are still active and likely producing moonquakes today, as the moon continues to gradually cool and shrink. Some of these quakes can be fairly strong, around five on the Richter scale. Hmm. 
do we need to pause here to talk a little bit about Richter scale and yeah, how it's Rick- an outdated method of measuring? Yeah, yeah. it's not the Richter scale. It, no. It's yeah. called something else now, right? Well, yeah, well, it's, it's uh, the moment magnitude scale. Yeah, the magnitude scale. Yeah, it's not the Richter scale. Right, right. I, I imagine he maybe used that term because in the 70s, that was it. It was the Richter scale. At the mm-hmm. time, but the um, U.S. Geological Survey no longer uses that to uh, describe earthquakes as they're happening mm-hmm. here on this planet. So I don't, I don't know if that's, uh, you know, he's just trying to remain consistent in the terminology because of the data from the seventies. Right. I'll give him, I'll give him a pass on on that one. Um, so here's what they did: they analyzed data from four size uh, seismometers placed on the moon by the Apollo astronauts. So cool that we're still gleaning information and using that information in our in our modern study of the moon it's incredible and they used an algorithm to develop to pinpoint quake locations detected by a sparse seismic network and the algorithm gave a better estimate of moonquake locations so using this revised information they found that 8 of the 28 quakes that i talked about they have 28 sets of set individual quakes that they've measured 8 of them were within 30 kilometers of faults visible in lunar images. And that's close enough to basically say that because of these faults moving, that's what was causing the uh, moonquakes that uh, they were able to register. Now, of the six, six of those eight quakes, they happened when the moon was near its apogee, which is farthest point from the Earth. And that's when additional tidal stress, here we go, Bob, linking it to yours, tidal stress from Earth's gravity causes a peak in total stress. So that helps further verify exactly what is going on here with the moon quakes. Really good stuff. Go moon. I just love it. Yay, go moon. I just just think it's great (laughs) that they're, you know, it's it's the uh, accumulation of knowledge. You know, these things don't, you know, we can't know everything in a year or two. It, It sometimes takes, you know, a decade or decades to, uh, to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. So I mean, it's fascinating. You know, most sciences, I mean, it's just an ongoing, consistent effort. That's right. It's a continual remeasuring, reshaping, and coming to a clearer truth, if you can get there, on what might really be going on. Uh, but don't worry. Uh, even though we do have planned missions to the moon and more landers going, and eventually people will be there within our lifetime again, they said that these moonquakes will likely not cause any issues to any visitors in the very near future. Uh, they mm-hmm. won't be severe enough to uh, be a threat to them. And, you know, they occur, occur still infrequently enough that we should be okay. Um, so we don't have to uh, worry about that so much. Yep. Okay. That's good to know. All right, Kara, I understand that we shouldn't farm octopuses. Why? Yeah, so there's um, a piece that came out in Issues in Science and Technology. It was um, picked up on Science Alert, written by a handful of like uh, scientists, actually an interesting, a motley crew, as it were, two environmental scientists, one history and a science philosopher, and then a psychologist published this study, um, or I shouldn't say study, it's actually more of an op-ed, it's The Case Against Octopus Farming. It's an argument that not only is raising octopuses in captivity for food environmentally not a good idea, it's also ethically not a good idea. And so they kind of go through and detail all the different reasons that they don't think that we should be farming octopuses. They also give a little bit of background on the 
the actual idea of farming octopuses. Definitely not something that would come into my mind very often. Often shows what different kind of perspectives and worldviews we hold. I don't culturally eat octopus, but that's mostly just because I don't eat seafood at all. Do you guys eat octopus? I mean, people, a lot of my no. friends eat octopus. Nah, no, it's not no, my no interest. Not to my liking. They're primate of the sea. Um, <laughs> there you go. But a lot of people do. But I eat pigs. Even, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of people who eat sushi eat octopus. A lot of people who eat Italian food eat octopus. Um, a lot of people who eat Asian food eat octopus. And even though octopus is um, culturally consumed around the world, it's increasingly becoming consumed in richer societies. So there's an increasing uh, demand for it. And unfortunately, fishing is not keeping up with that demand. The supply is not keeping up with the demand. And so what some fishing outlets, outfits, is that what you would call it? I don't yeah, really know. Yeah, outfit. Um, what some groups are trying to do, and this is happening both in the research lab and in practice, is farm octopus to be able to keep up with that demand. Um, but these researchers and um, ethicists are basically saying, nay, nay, this is a bad idea. And so first they start talking about factory farming. They talk a little bit about animal welfare. They talk about environmental impacts of factory farming, like habitat loss. And they mostly are talking about the standard domesticates that we factory farm right now. Now, if you think about it, most of the mammalian domesticates that we factory farm, not just mammalian, uh, mammalian actually, we do factory farm chickens as well, are, can you think of one thing that's in common between like goats, cows, pigs, chickens? Hmm. They're the domesticated. Yeah, other than the fact that they're domesticated, which yes, you're right, octopuses are not domesticated. Think um, about their food, their how they eat. What's their food source? They Gra eat grains. Grass. They do not eat meat. They're not carnivores. Yeah. Oh. And octopuses are carnivorous. And so one of the biggest and I think most compelling arguments in this um, piece, which makes a lot of arguments, and I don't think I have time to go through all of them, is that farming carnivorous organi uh, organisms is actually really environmentally impactful because the amount of feed that they require actually requires fish more fish farming. Mm -hmm. We have to use oh, okay. fish feed to then feed the octopuses. Right. And it's a three to one ratio. Mm -hmm. um, so they need to eat three times what they produce. And because of that, it actually becomes quite um, wasteful, both in terms of habitat, in terms of things like pollutants, like nitrogen pollutants, things like that, that end up in the water supply. The standard risks and concerns that come into fish farming anyway, like crossbreeding between wild type and um, farmed versions, especially um, once those are bred for certain traits. For example, captive fish, captive fish that are raised for farming often are more aggressive. They often experience more stress and injury. They tend to have a, a higher pathogen load. This kind of stuff is, is very common with uh, fish farming, although it is, you know, improving, but they require a lot as well. They require a lot of like, like antibiotics. There's a lot of interbreeding. Sometimes you see higher levels of uh, herbicides, uh, fertilizers, different types of disinfectants. And the, like I mentioned before, the nitrogen and phosphorus loads are really, really high. Um, but these things are, are the concerns that are often 
in the conversation when we talk about fish farming, but specific to octopuses and other carnivorous fish is that their aquaculture requires fish meal. And these fish meal fisheries are actually often subject to overfishing. So it just kind of compounds the ecological footprint as it is. We This is a whole other conversation, but we've talked on the show a lot, right, about um, overfishing and just mm-hmm. the stress that mm-hmm. it's putting on our oceans right now. So this just compounds that. Now, the other interesting thing about octopuses is that they're invertebrates. And we often think of invertebrates as being like lower on the food chain. We think of them as being, the even the carnivorous ones are like less carnivorous, um, but octopuses are atypical because they are highly carnivorous. Um, and they're also atypical from, you know, bivalves and other kinds of invertebrate organisms that we often eat, like mollusks and clams and uh, oysters and things like that. In that this is the second part of their argument. They're really sophisticated. Mm-hmm. Behaviorally, they're really yeah. sophisticated. They're really intelligent. Now, this comes down to a different kind of ethical conversation, which I think there are many lines in the sand. Um, I am not taking the position of these researchers necessarily. I have not studied this enough. I don't think it's fair for me to take a position because I'm not sure where my line in the sand is when it comes to should we eat an organism based on its intelligence level and who is to say what that, you know, cutoff is. But that said, part of the reason that this is difficult is that their intelligence actually lends to making it really difficult to keep them in captivity. Yeah. So what are like, they doing, Kara? Are they the escaping? They like and, open latches and shit. Yeah, they oh. like escape all the time. <laughs> Do you always read these amazing articles or stories about like, octopuses in zoos or in um, aquariums that will like open their own enclosure and like move on to several other enclosures. Like you'll read about how there's an octopus like five enclosures down and then like this food source keeps going away. Like the stuff that they eat is like minimizing and minimizing, even though they're keeping it in a totally separate tank because the octopus in the middle of the night is like, yeah, hi, I'm sneaking out. Um, <laughs> they, they can squeeze through teeny tiny spaces. Have you guys have all seen oh, yeah, amazing seen the videos? videos are amazing of that. Yeah, of them like escaping a, a deck of a ship or like going into a bottle. And also they tend to when they are captive, which is one of the biggest difficulties that researchers and um, practical investigators have faced in trying to farm them because nobody's been fully successful at farming them yet. It's super complicated technically. And that's because um, apparently here's a quote from a researcher uh, as early as the 1970s saying cannibalism containment, dependence upon live food, and the death of gravid females before laying second-generation eggs in the laboratory. These are issues that they're dealing with. So in captivity, octopuses are known to cannibalize one another. They're known to gnaw on their tentacle tips, Ah, which, yeah, which they think... It might be uh, an effect of a, a, some sort of infection, but it might just be a psychological uh, effect. It's oh hard God, to know. That is really, yeah, that's probably. hard it's to super hear, sad, really. right? Um, and also, it's really hard for them to maintain egg-laying females. They tend to die. They tend to get too sick and die. Oh so um, it's a difficult thing anyway. A lot of researchers are working on it. And this 
publication, which is like an op-ed in this in in this publication, Issues in Science and Technology, is called The Case Against Octopus Farming. And they say for ethical and environmental reasons, raising octopuses in captivity for food is a bad idea. So it's a case that Terrible. these researchers are making. Um, of course, again, I'm not taking that case. I'm not not taking that case. I think I still need to read a lot more about it. But food for thought, no pun intended, because it's just something I never thought about before. And I was super interested to come across this um, this article. Yeah, I mean, it's especially interesting because octopuses are so different, you know, in they're that. They're different. Yeah, they're yeah. invertebrate, you know. I mean, and, apparently they're aliens, Steve. Oh, yeah, yeah. We had <laughs> oh, that's that. right. Oh, that. yeah. oh, God. And they have better designed eyes than we do. Mm-hmm. That's, that's true. That's right. It's all designed. What was this? Pan- they were panspermia, right? That was the whole thing. Yeah, that thing. was the right. panspermia Last thing, year. yeah. Oh Total nonsense. God. Because how else so could dumb. that have happened on this planet? I know. <laughs> you, know, it's, it's, you know, I hate to – I'm doing this thing in my head where I want to say some things and then I'm like the hypocrisy of my statement because I, I eat pig. You know, I eat pork. Mm-hmm. I want to say things like just leave them the hell alone. They're too smart for this kind of crap. It's really sad. Like I, I, I just – lab-grown meat, man. I just keep saying it. Like, <laughs> that's just, we're heading there. Uh, we are hard and, and get past this more impossible. Well, and burgers. let's be clear these these researchers are not making any sort of arguments against fishing octopus if you're doing it sustainably and ethically. Right, octopus has long been eaten. I think it's an important food source for a lot of people. They're not making any arguments against that. What they're saying is, if we can't keep up with demand, we need to be more sustainable in our practices and maybe yeah. reduce um, and and you know fish in season. Do all the things that you need to do to be a, a competent and um, and respectful fisher person, but don't don't just start farming them to keep up with demand because it doesn't yeah. appear to be the answer to the questions that we have about global food supply. It appears to maybe potentially have more negative outcomes mm. than, yeah. than positive ones. They're just, they're just not a good species for farming and captivity. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's been known for it. decades. It's yeah. already so difficult to do it that they're saying, why are we pumping so much money and doing so much harm and trying to m- make this thing that's not going to work, work? Look at all the potential downsides right. of it. Right. So yeah, interesting. Cool. All right. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Kara. Yep. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. Look, when you get rack time, make it count. Are you sleeping on a crappy mattress? I used to sleep on a crappy Mm. mattress. Don't do it. Why would you do that to yourself? I'm recommending a Lisa mattress. Why? Jay, why get a Lisa mattress? Simply put, they're awesome. They're wicked comfortable. And Jay, Jay. Yes, I'm here. Did you know they actually have two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases? So they've got the all-foam Lisa mattress, and it's actually new and improved. It's got this cooling foam that has enhanced pressure relief just for side sleepers like me. And they also have the Sapira hybrid mattress, which is a great combination of foam and springs in case if you're one of those people who needs that extra pressure relief and support. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. And from day one, Lisa set out to create a company with heart. That's why they donate one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in causes like foster care prevention. So get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash skeptics and use promo code skeptics. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash skeptics, promotion code skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Jay, it's who's that noisy time? Noisy. Last week, I played this noisy. Noisy.
Oh, yeah. Is that like Predator or Alien or one of those things? It does Is sound that like a- that, doesn't alien it? Alien and Predator fighting? I can't no. keep... Okay. <laughs> so a listener named Glenn Brady wrote in and said, I was so prepared to send you a wisecrack answer this week, but I'm certain, fairly sure, I kind of think that it might be a cane toad. Bufo Marinus. And uh, that's not correct. And you were the first of many people who wrote in that this was some type of uh, toad or frog, but it isn't. But you know what? This is why this game is so much fun. So another uh, listener wrote in, Justice Smith, J-U-S-T-U-S. That's a really cool first name. And uh, they say, hey, Jay, at first I thought it was the Predator from the Predator franchise. But on a second listen, it sounds like uh, more like a woodpecker drumming. Not sure what species, but it sounded large. Maybe a pileated, pileated, Steve? Pileated, yeah. Pileated woodpecker. There it is. That's not correct. And you were the first of many people to write in about woodpeckers. But we had a winner. She or he is from Romania. And C-S-A-B-I pronounced chubby. C-S-A-B-I. That is adorable. Chubby. So this is from Chubby. Uh, Chubby says, this week's Who's That Noisy is a shoebill stork. Listen again. He's basically rattling his, his mouth together. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And cool. apparently this is some type of communication, probably to do with wanting yeah. to have sex. Or delivering probably. a child. Yes. Yeah, that was a good noisy. I liked it. I'm always happy when some type of winged being creature is is mm-hmm. showcased and who's that noisy and steve doesn't have a clue next week it's a pegasus. Steve, no i didn't recognize the sound but you know by amazing coincidence this is a total 100 percent coincidence i was reading mm. about the shoe bill stork just today what? what that's cool what'd you find out that it has a bill shaped like a shoe no way <laughs> it does <laughs> i thought it had a shoe shaped like a bill oh boy Yep. <laughs> that you know, they're very, um, they're very interesting birds. They, their their proportions are all weird, and yeah. they, they look very serious. They look very serious, but um, yeah, they're cool. They're native Absolutely. to they're native to Africa. Yes, but not where I was. We did not ah. see any shoebill storks, but we did see a marabou stork, which was pretty cool. Cool. They're very ugly. All right. Well, Steve, that's cool, and it just shows you anybody you know, like who wants to be a millionaire. Yeah, oh, like sure. you might just have that piece of information. I love that. I love when like <laughs> there's a conversation going on and I'm like, I just learned that today. You know, you're like, oh my God. <laughs> and then of course, the way you say it, you know, well, of course, the blah, blah, blah. Is the blah. Yeah, you have to show it off a little. Anyway, maybe that's just me. But here is this week's noisy sent in by a listener named Robert Spohm. Listen carefully, okay? <laughs> Yeah, it keeps going on like that. Um, you know, yeah, you hear, you guys like hear the, the fluctuation wind. in tone, right? You hear, you hear a fluctuation in the tone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Not the gush. Just checking. You know, I didn't. I really wasn't sure. Every every once in a while, I get a noisy that I love, but I'm not sure if it's going to translate. And I'm, you know, and this was one of them. But it's it's provocative. It's a cool cool sound. And when you find out what it is, you will say two things to yourself. I will only tell you one of them now. You will say, "Oh yeah, of course." That's one of the things I think you might say. Okay? 
Are you yep. good, Steve? I'm you good. You feeling all right, Steve? Yep, I'm good. Hey, guys, don't forget, Skeptical is happening June 9th. This is Northern California's one-day conference for fans of scientific skepticism. I love that. Scientific skepticism is like one of the, the, the sayings in my life that has incredible meaning. It's one of my favorite things. It's their 10th conference, mm-hmm. and they will have the usual science and critical thinking presentations, ex- exhibitors, entertainment, and opportunities for the local skeptic community to meet and converse. I hope. I was hoping that she was going to say, this is from Eugenie Scott, by the way, I was hoping that she was going to say they would have the usual science and critical thinking suspects, but she did not say that. June 9th, Skeptical 2019. It's at the Hyatt Regency in San Francisco, in the San Francisco Hotel in Burlingame. Burlingame. You can go check out the website for the speaker list, location, and other information at SkepticalCon, SkepticalCon.com. Okay, S-K-E-P-T-I-C-A-L-C-O-N, C-O-N, dot com. Cool. All right, we have an interesting interview coming up with a dark matter scientist, so let's go to that interview now. Joining us now is Bjorn Penning. Bjorn, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. Hi, thanks for having me. So Bjorn, you are an assistant professor of physics at the University of Brandeis, and your research interest is in dark matter. And uh, we've been wanting to talk to a dark matter expert on the show for a while. It comes up. There's a lot of dark matter in the news. First, why don't you just tell us a little bit about the focus of your research? The focus of my research right now is, as you said, dark matter. And in particular, I'm looking for dark matter directly by building a detector along with uh, a group of other institutions that we are placing in, in a mine in South Dakota, very deep underground, to be able to catch dark matter as it comes from space directly. Now, is that dependent upon any particular hypothesis about what dark matter is? Like that, that technique will only work if dark matter turns out to be one type of thing and not some other type of thing? Yes, there's a certain assumption there. The assumptions are rather loose. So we believe that dark matter is a particle. And Mm -hmm. this particle can have a very wide mass range, but we built our detector such that they are sensitive to, to a very large mass range of potential particles which interact very weakly. Now, it could be, of course, that maybe dark matter is completely different than we believe, and then it wouldn't work out. But we purposefully try to build a detector which has a very generic sensitivity. So So you would be detecting this gravitationally. It would would be a gravitational interaction, I assume, right? No, no. uh, We have seen dark matter only gravitationally. Right. What we're trying to do is, or what we're attempting to, is to build a detector in which dark matter would be seen directly. Meaning, if you think of neutrinos, we can see neutrinos which interact very weakly. Yep. Uh, and still, once in a while, they bump into something and create a signal. And in these detectors, we follow a similar principle. Actually, future neutrino detectors are built on the same principle that our detector is built. And we're using 10 tons of xenon. And xenon is such that it's very, very clean. It's a noble, noble gas. Uh, it can purify to very high levels. And if something bumps into it in dark matter, as the name says, it's matter. If a dark matter particle bumps into a xenon atom, the xenon atom will create a small signal made out of light and charge. Mm-hmm. 
So are these WIMPs you're looking for, the weakly interacting massive particles? Exactly. Okay. As, um, opposed, so yes. to the, as, as opposed to the machos, right, the massive compact halo objects, I think. Those were like the two, at least in the early days. I, um, I'm not sure if, if that's even still a distinction that, that's being popularly made uh, these days. And this is an excellent point. So when, 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 the point, when, when the thing with dark matter came up the first time in the 1930s, dark was really referring to no light. And there was a bunch of hypotheses people checked out, including machos, for example. Machos stayed along a long time, stayed around a long time. It is just that over the last 50 years, the evidence has, become, has gotten stronger and stronger and people check different possibilities. Most of them were actually sort of regular matter, just not uh, emitting light. Right. And machos, to, to speak to uh, to speak very scientifically, the potential quote unquote phase space for machos is largely excluded. Mm-hmm. So dark matter really has to be an entirely new type of matter. So if something bumps into these xenon atoms in your gas, um, how do you know it's dark matter? Um, good question. We don't. <laughs> so, so what we have to do is that we make these detectors ultra clean. We build them deep underground, one mile underground, so that we filter out all of the cosmic rays and all of the natural radiation. Then in the detector itself underground, of course, you still have natural radiation. And neutrinos. Actually, that's a very good point. Let me come to neutrinos in a second. Yeah, I was going to ask about that too. Yeah. Yeah. So, in fact, so around this detector, around the central bottle, the cryostat with uh, liquefied xenon, we're building layers of shielding. So not only are we one mile underground, but we're building, uh, we have a massive water tank to shield from gamma rays. We're building what we call an outer detector. It's actually what I'm building at Brandeis. So a special detector to detect only neutrons and catch neutrons in the act because they look very similar to dark matter, as you just said. And then xenon itself is enormously heavy. Xenon is so heavy, like xenon, that a piece of aluminium can float in it. Mm. Um, so the tiny little bit of, of neutrons or gamma rays, which are still making it pass to our active and passive shielding, will get stuck in the first few centimeters of the xenon and not make it through. And therefore, we can just look at the innermost part of the xenon, which is the sort of quietest place on Earth we can build, and look there for the sign of of dark matter because it passes through or not i'm sorry it can pass through the other layers and then inter is the only one to interact in the center only but you're completely right neutrinos also would do the same and in fact it's the detector that we're building right now and we're starting next year will be the first one to be so sensitive that we are sensitive to a certain part of the a solar neutrino spectrum which would look like dark matter Mm-hmm. And therefore, we will have some background from neutrinos. But of course, we can calculate how much this is. And if we expect, for right. example, we neutrino events and we see three events and we say, look, close but no cigar, this, this must be neutrinos, or at least statistically, these are neutrinos. Mm-hmm. If we see 20 events and we expect three background events, then we go book our tickets to Stockholm for the Nobel Prize. <laughs> so if, 
if this is basically a neutrino detector, why haven't previous neutrino detectors detected dark matter? Because um, dark matter interacts, from what we know, much, much, uh, it interacts much weaker than actual neutrinos. So oh, it's actually less neutrinos. than neutrinos. And that's exactly. saying something. It is saying something. Uh, and so, so we, we're using xenon, which has a mass, atomic mass of about 137, and it's one of the rarest elements on Earth. And it's also very expensive. Neutrino detectors usually use, for example, large amounts of water or uh, large amounts of argon, and they are just not clean enough. Neutrinos have a much more powerful signature than, than dark matter. Yeah, so it's really like a super, super neutrino detector that's even more isolated. Exactly. Yeah, that's cool. Let's say you complete this, you turn it on, and you don't get any yeah, uh, extra events. Yeah. yeah, so what what would you think? What, what would that? What would your hypothesis be at that point? Is there still a possibility that your detector just isn't good enough? Or do you think you have to move beyond WIMPs as an explanation for dark matter? Um, the answer is a clear both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> as you know, uh, we, we cannot verify theories. We can just falsify theories. The WIMP parameter space is very, very large. And while we try to build the most generic possible detectors for the largest amount of parameter space, there's always something left. If you think about, I used to work on collider searches. And I was part of the team when we discovered the Higgs, the first Higgs evidence. We were looking for the Higgs for wow. 40 years yeah. on different colliders before we finally found it. And the lesson learned is that we can find it very quickly, as we did with the LHC. When the machine is right and it's there, we find it quickly. Nature is kind to us, but we cannot choose how nature is. So the WIMP right. is not dead, as people sometimes claim it's far from dead. The Higgs yeah. wasn't dead after 30 years. It took 42 years to find it. So... Speaking of the LHC, um, now it's reopening in 2021 in, in a couple of years. And I heard that they're going to try looking for these sibling particles uh, for, for dark matter. I, I, I guess the idea is that there, there may be this hidden sector of, you know, of families of particles all related to, to, to dark matter. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think this is super interesting. Uh, full disclosure, I have worked on this for many, many years. Okay. Mm -hmm. And before coming to Boston, this is why my Skype still has a London address. Mm -hmm. I was a junior faculty and then later professor in London and in Bristol University. And I actually worked exactly on this. I worked on dark matter searches with colliders. And the great thing is about colliders, if we would be able to produce it, we don't only have to wait for it to come randomly or semi-randomly out of space and then be detected. But we have it in the laboratory. The problem is, which made me move to direct searches is that you have to have enough energy to actually create it. And as I said, there's a very large energy range possible. Mm -hmm. And I think the searches are important, but given how much data we already have and that we're not getting a significant increase in energy, it will be very difficult. But we might have just overlooked it so far. Okay. So basically we're looking where we technologically have the light. And if we don't find it in one place, it just means it's okay, it's in another place. But there's still a lot of locations, as you're saying, the parameter space is big enough that if these techniques don't find it, there's still other places it could be. It doesn't rule it out. Exactly. I'm, I'm always paraphrasing a little bit Sherlock Holmes of the mm-hmm. author Conan Doyle, who says, mm-hmm. if we exclude all possibilities, then whatever remains must be the truth, right? Right. And this is right. essentially what we're doing. 
and, and that's been yeah, and that's been happening uh, all along. I mean, just recently, uh, there's been some news about how Hawking's idea that the Big Bang created a lot of these um, these super mini black holes, like as big as a proton. And one of the theories was that dark matter consisted of these very tiny uh, bits of tiny little black holes, essentially all over the place, and that that would account for for some of the behavior. So they they looked for it and they tried to find these little micro lensing events where a black hole, a little mini black hole would, would pass in front of a star and it should happen a certain amount of times if dark matter actually con- is consisted of, a, of black holes and they didn't find it. So they're just ruling out yet another hypothesis that, that dark matter consists of these, of these mini black holes. So that seems like that's ruled out. So it just gets, you know, the, the answer is we're closing in on, on the answer. We just got to keep shaving away all these possibilities until eventually, you know, we'll, We'll say, well, it's got to be something like this. We'll have a, we'll constrain it so much that we'll be able to devise an experiment to uh, to detect it. Exactly, exactly. And this is how discoveries mostly happen, right? I mean, as I said, we're in when we discovered the Higgs, we were close to it for a long time because yeah. it's just like you look for your keys; it's always in the last place. You know? <laughs> yeah. uh, and so we were sensitive to the potential Higgs mass range, and we cut off the parts right and left, right and left, and zoomed in. And this is our plan. Now, that said, I have to say, and it's actually very, very exciting in science these days, because of we had our toy theories. Everyone has his favorite models. And it looked for some, some time that the stars, so to say, are well aligned with the start of the LHC and different experimental efforts coming online, direct dark matter searches, collider searches, that with the right theory, the right realization of theory it would just click into place. This unfortunately didn't happen. And so this has spawned now much more focus on these other parts of the parameter space. And a lot of new experiments are being built which are using complete different technologies. For example, you might have heard about axions, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, they are now, this, this axion dark matter effort has been a few years ago really emphasized by universities and the government that there's a great experiment running which looks for dark matter at uh, a very low mass scale. Or just these days, there's a new effort coming. It's called uh, New Initiatives in Dark Matter, where people think about, for example, using superfluid helium for dark matter detection or building special accelerator really aimed towards low mass dark matter, these things. Yeah. And uh, you know, just to be complete here, the modified Newtonian dynamics how completely dead is that alternative hypothesis? The idea that dark matter is really just a new tone, new, you know, gravity works differently than we think it does. It's on not really an actual particle. Scales, yeah. Yeah, yeah. On super large scales. But uh, that, I, our sense is that's pretty much dead. Is that, you agree with that? I agree with that. Um, yeah. These uh, modified gravity theories, I mean, a lot of good thinking has gone into that, of course, but in order to account for all of the observations, they need a lot of tweaking. And usually when you tweak the one observation to account for it, then the other one starts to drop off the table, so to say. And uh, the, the key point about dark matter is we see it in the earliest imprint of the universe. We see it fairly close in the galactic scale. We see it in superclusters, in the ca- superclusters, the galactic firmament. And this is an enormous scale tracks all over the place and you have to be able to explain that with a consistent theory and it's very hard. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, the the idea that dark matter is an actual particle that exists, uh, it's at this point in time, that's the cleanest explanation for the astronomical observations, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Bjorn, is, are there any things we should have asked you that we didn't ask you? I haven't thought about this, actually. No, I thought this was a... I said, you guys know a lot. I listen to some of your podcasts. So oh, great. you guys know a lot, but uh, you know a lot about particle physics, and I think this was quite comprehensive. Okay, great. Thank you. So listen, you know, we, we definitely want to keep track of your research and if you do detect dark matter, you know you're going to be overwhelmed with requests for interviews. <laughs> so I'm hoping, I'm hoping though that you'll you'll won't you'll you'll answer our emails when we try to line up an interview with you. Skeptics sure? Guide, who? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Stockholm. Oh no, the Skeptics Guide. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this has really been a fascinating interview. Yeah. We appreciate you giving us okay. your time. Oh, thank you very much for calling. Have a good night. And good luck. Thank you. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We'll do it. There's a theme this week. Can you guess the theme? Yes, I can. It has to do with the moon. It is Africa. Good, Evan. Oh, hey. crap. I wonder who's going last. Steve, there's a lot of moon stuff going on. I was on. in I knew- one country in a very big continent. Which is why I looked at pictures of the shoebill stork today because I was looking up Africa stuff. That's why I saw oh, it. Oh, should have known. All right. Here we go. Three things about Africa. Ready? Item number one, the Sahara Desert is growing. Its southern border expands south by one half kilometer every month. Item number two, about 200 separate native languages are spoken in Africa. And item number three, the pangolin is the most trafficked animal in the world, sold for its scales and meat. Evan, since you uh, guessed the theme, you get to go first. Oh, yeah, that's what I get? (laughs) Oh, boy. Yeah. The Sahara Desert is growing. I'm not surprised by that. What I am surprised... Is one half kilometer a month? Ah, uh, that's severe. Ah, uh. uh, from my, you know, I'm a neophyte when it comes to things like measuring the size of deserts, but uh, that sounds extreme. The next one, two hundred or about two hundred separate native languages are spoken in Africa. Well, you know, it's roughly about thirty-five countries or so, so that would make it about couple languages per country if you're going to break it up that way but it's i'm sure it's not an even distribution such as that who knows 200 sure it sounds like a lot but maybe again not this last one the pangolin which is a combination of a penguin and a mandolin is the most trafficked (laughs) animal and instrument in the world sold for its scales and meat and strings so I don't I don't know. I've never heard of a pangolin before. What the heck? If it's the most trafficked animal in the world, that's that it's an animal is news to me, but let alone being the most trafficked animal in the world? Oh boy. Ugh. I don't know, Steve. This is total total guesswork on my part. Uh pangolin. Gosh, wait. No. Native languages. No, wait. The desert's growing. All right. <laughs> You can't pick them all. I can't pick them all, but I will pick the desert growing by a half kilometer per month. It's just too extreme. Okay, Bob. 
Yeah, I mean, obviously feel similarly. Half a kilometer seems ridiculous. Um, I've, I've I've heard of deserts growing before, but that that much. But then again, maybe in the grand scheme of things, a half a kilometer, you know, isn't that huge in terms of uh, like imminent takeover. Um, 200 languages, yeah. I mean, I have no idea. It doesn't sound too crazy. Um, and the pangolin, yeah, same similar reaction. I mean, what the hell? I don't. I mean, number one. Uh, all right, I'm gonna say that. I'm gonna say pangolin's fiction. Okay, Jay. All right, the Sahara Desert is growing. Uh, its southern border expands south by half a kilometer every month. Sounds like a lot. I guess it would depend on how you define what its southern border is. I was reading about the Sahara Desert recently, and it said something like, it's not as much sand as you think it is, like it's other stuff going on. I can't, you know, it's like I read a lot at night before I go to bed. Um, okay, this next one, though, is 200 separate native languages. Like, I think it's a hell of a lot more than 200. But then when Steve says separate native languages, would you consider a dialect, Steve? Mm-hmm. You see what I'm getting at here? 200 separate native languages. Is a dialect considered a separate native language or is it considered the same language? What is a dialect? A dialect is like accents and different word uses and different pronunciation and stuff no, it, like I mean, that. It's not, it's not it's, a language. Yeah, this is, these are linguists consider something that a linguist would consider a different language. Well, look, all I know about Africa is that there's lots of different people with lots. It has a lot of languages and 200 doesn't even come close to what I, I the number I have rattling around in my head. The pangolin, I mean, I, I know what a pangolin is. I mean, and I, uh, I think if you guys saw a picture of one, you would know what it is. I have no idea if it's the most trafficked animal in the world. You would think that something really big with a lot of meat on it would. I've never seen anybody wearing pangolin scales. Maybe they're using them for homeopathy or something. All right. So, okay. So because I know, it's funny that these guys didn't know what it was. I mean, I the pangolin, sure. I, I, oh, I know why I know what it is. Because I've talked about it a thousand times on the show before. Well, a I, thousand no, times? I, no, you haven't. Multiple no, times. It's because I have kids. I oh, don't That's work. why the pangolin. Yeah, it's, a, it's in a kid's book. All right. Anyway, <laughs> all right, I'm going to go with the languages thing because I think Steve is vastly underestimating the number of languages. Wow. Right, so you guys Three are all over the place. Yeah, so I haven't even gone. Uh, well, that's <laughs> it, Kara. Now tell us what's really going the, on. The guys are split, so you get to give the right answer. Yeah. So the pangolin is absolutely the most trafficked animal in the world. Yikes. Crap. I have mentioned this multiple times on the show. It's in the Aardvark family. It's covered in keratin scales. And those they're scales adorable. are, yeah, they're adorable. They're really elusive and they're not that afraid. I mean, they're afraid of humans, but like they don't have, they're easy to just grab and they, go. They, yeah, and it's they, really sad. They like curl it's up really into a sad. ball. Mm-hmm. And um, they are trafficked for, what do you think? Traditional Chinese medicine. Traditional African so, medicine. So yeah, super, no, traditional Chinese medicine. No. Oh, um, so I was right. Good. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's that an African pangolin and an Asian pangolin. Oh, but, interesting. Um, but yeah, yeah. They're it's so sad. Um, Sahara Desert is growing. I know this. I've read about this, and so I'm with Jay on this. I don't know the actual number of native languages, but I can, based on your calculations, even right there, Evan. Like, it's so much more than that. It's probably like 200 languages per country. Like, there's so many languages spoken in Africa. So I'm going to go with Jay, and I'm going to say that the number – I wouldn't be surprised if it's an order of magnitude off, if it's more yeah, like 2,000. Yeah, I thought. Yeah. yeah, if it's more like 2,000 languages. So that's my answer. All right. Well, you guys are spread out, so we'll take these in order. The Sahara Desert is growing. Its southern border expands south by one-half kilometer every month. 
Evan, you thought this one was a fiction. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is science. Science. <laughs> wow. Yep. Six kilometer kilometers. Six kilometers a year. Um, it's grown by about 10% in area over the last 90 years or so. Uh, is that when we started like really measuring it? Yeah. Yeah. But it's accelerated recently. Um, and it's been in the last 10 years, if you average out its, its increase in size in the last 10 years, that southern border. Again, it's not perfectly uniform. It's, it depends on where you measure it. But if you average it out, it's about six kilometers per year southward. Is that climate change? Just like less precipitation? It's, it's hard to say. Mm. And because there's uh, natural ten, ten trends here as well, but it, it's believed that that anthropogenic global warming is playing a role in mm-hmm. the the rate at which the Sahara Desert is expanding. I think it's been naturally expanding just as the, the climates are changing for over a long period of time, but the recent fairly rapid increase is probably due to man-made climate change. But deserts like grow and recede all the time. Yep, know? that's that's correct and this is so this is you know on top of that natural seasonal changes and the sort of ebbing and flowing of the desert this has been it's been steadily on average increasing. It's flowing not ebbing. Yeah. So uh, Jay, I think you asked, well, how do they define what is a desert? And uh, in this study, they used a very specific definition. Precipitation, right? Yeah, Sand. precipitation. Nope, precipitation. Uh, less than 100 millimeters of water rainfall per year. Which means the, the Antarctic is a desert. Yes, the or... Antarctic is a frozen desert. The Sahara is the second driest desert. Australia is drier. And it's the largest Hot desert, the snowy desert like like Antarctica are bigger, uh, but Sahara is the largest hot desert, second driest desert. But it's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. It used to be all rainforest, you know, if you go back millions of years. So there's that long, long term trend. What a letdown. Yeah, oh yeah, it's super of- weird too. Like when I was in Morocco, remember, I brought home some Orthoceros fossils from the mountains. Yeah, so that was like that's squids. always cool. Yeah, squids in like the squids mountains. in the mountains. Yeah, yeah, they're like snakes on a plane. <laughs> yeah, just like you know, millions and millions of years ago. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's go to number two. About two hundred separate native languages are spoken in Africa. Uh, Bob and Evan, you think this one is science? Jay and Kara, you think this one is the fiction? So, Bob and Evan, it sounded to me like you thought the two hundred was a high number. No, seemed reasonable. Well, and Evan, I don't know. I mean, and Jay and Carrie, you think it's a low number? Absolutely. Yeah. Very low. Very low. Yeah. So the number, is it 200 or is it not 200? The real number is <laughs> 2,000 separate yeah. languages. So there you go. Yes. This one is the fiction. Yep, yep. The estimate is between 1,500 and 2,000. They don't really know for sure, but that's the estimate between 1,500 and 2,000 separate distinct languages in Africa. Yeah, if you listen to my podcast just this week, the woman that I interviewed, Max, Maxie Lewis, was saying in her neighborhood where she grew up in the towns outside of Vintuk, she she speaks nine languages because yeah. that's how many languages were spoken like on her block. Right. Yeah. Yeah, so you have to remember that before colonization, colonialism you know, in Africa, it was thousands of tribes. There's a, so much more genetic and cultural diversity in Africa than there is in the rest of the world. Like the rest of the world is a footnote, you know, in terms of diversity. 
because you know humans spent a lot of time just in Africa, you know, mm-hmm. with yeah. developing a lot of genetic and cultural yeah. diversity. Mm-hmm. The diasporas were only you know a certain group of people each time. So. Yeah, and it was fairly recent in terms of human history. So in any case, yeah, there's the most of everything in Africa basically when it comes to that. But yeah, two you know as many as two thousand languages on that continent. So yeah. cool. That's you know a what lot. I realize. Kids' books are great for science or fiction. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well. I mean, I, I think I virtually found out everything in this science or fiction from reading a book about Africa with Dylan and deserts. and You know what I mean? That's yeah. awesome. Like, we, like let's That's do another good. one about sharks because I think my <laughs> shark food is really good right now. <laughs> well, shark right, week's all up, so. of this means that the pangolin is the most trafficked animal in the world sold for its scales of meat is science, as Kara said. Pangolins are adorable. They're like armored aardvarks. Mm-hmm. They're the only mammal with keratin scales. Mm-hmm. Uh, they Yum. curl up in a little ball like as their defense. Yeah, almost yeah, like an armadillo, but, but I think even even more armored than an armadillo. And they also um, walk on their hind legs. It's so cute. And uh, the the scales are ground just like just like rhino rhino horns are ground down into a powder and sold as traditional Chinese medicine, and that's driving a lot of the demand. Um, millions are killed every year for the, for the traffic. The reason why that the trafficking in African pangolins is so high is because they've decimated the Asian pangolin population already. So now they're moving on to Africa. And also the meat increasingly has been, is considered to be a delicacy. And so there's a lot of demand for pangolin meat. Yeah, uh, I literally got a message from one of my friends that I made in Africa today saying, oh, another pangolin sting at the border. Mm-hmm. And he was there actually to cover a pangolin conservation effort before he came to the conference. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's fresh on the minds of people there. But it's funny because if you do Google it, a common headline is pangolin, the most trafficked animal you've never heard of. Yeah, exactly. Recently in February uh, in Hong Kong, they seized a shipment of 8,300 kilograms of pangolin scales. That represents 14,000 individual pangolins in that one shipment. And that would have had a street value of about $5 million. That's so sad. Yeah. 2017 estimates, uh, the estimates are that there were 2.7 million pangolins were poached in Africa alone for the Whoa. meat and scales. And yeah, yeah traditional can't last long with that kind of poaching. I know no, traditional Chinese horrible. medicine drives a lot of these rare species to extinction. TCM, it's evil. This is all for like boner pills. It's yeah. so Which frustrating. Don't work. <laughs> that don't work. That don't, don't work. work. It's it's fingernails. It's just fingernails. It's just fingernails. Uh, yeah. They should just take it's a like bunch of dirt, sh- grind it up, say it is an animal, and then sell that to them. You know, I mean. Maybe they have ways to test it. I don't know. It's There's a lot of a lot of you know interventions in place. None of them are perfect. Mm. None of them are working as well as we'd like. But yeah, if only we could just get that message across. It's just fingernails. Just, Chew on your own yeah. goddamn fingernails. Right. Steve, <laughs> yeah. Stop killing these. Animals. I forgot a couple of couple of things. One, the the new website. By the time you listen to this show, the new website should be fully published. What? Yes. How exciting! And, I know. I can't. I can't wait. Hey. And I. And I am asking you, as our SGU listeners, to give us feedback. You know, there's there's a lot of stuff that I know I have to improve that we're going to, you know, either add more content or, you know, just make general improvements on. But give me, you know, shoot us an email at info at and let me know what you think or anything, any ideas that you have and improvements. And the other thing, 
join our newsletter. Mm -hmm. Uh, Every month I've been sending out a newsletter. Steve writes a letter to uh, anyone that uh, that gets it. And I I put in a lot of fun facts and interesting things in there and, you know, keep you up on what the SGU is doing as well. So a lot of people have written in and said that they absolutely love uh, what we're doing. So you could join our newsletter on the homepage of the SGU. You'll see a place at the bottom to sign up. All you do is pop your email in there and your email will only be used for uh, worldwide marketing and, and uh, you know, hacking into your computer. And along with that, you will receive the SGU <laughs> newsletter. Yeah, only for identity theft. Nothing else, we promise. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that guy that was like he, – he was the CEO of an identity theft company and he said, you know, here's my social security number. Yep. And like – Three days later, he got hacked. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> God, I love no. that story. Okay. Yeah. Evan. Better so... test some of these things before you go ahead and make claims. Uh, Evan, give us a quote. Kind of leads us to the quote, uh, poetically. Nothing is too wonderful to be true if it be consistent with the laws of nature. And in such things as these, experiment is the best test of such consistency. Michael Faraday. Yeah, Michael Faraday. Of the Faraday cage fame. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good quote. Nothing is too wonderful to be true. That's true. That's right. But it has to be consistent with the laws of nature. Thank you very much. That's right. As opposed to fantasies, which are not that interesting and inconsistent with reality. <laughs> so they're doubly boring. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, thank you all for joining me this week. Thanks, Thanks, Steve. Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. 